Introduction Welcome to the Abarta Audio Guide to the Derry na Flan Trail. This guide, produced in conjunction with Sleeve Arda Rural Development, Holy Cross Community Network and Littleton Development Association, will lead you around this beautiful landscape and through thousands of years of history by following in the footsteps of some of the first Christians in Ireland. The remains of these wonderfully atmospheric and evocative sites have suffered Viking raids, the dissolution of the monasteries under King Henry VIII, been attacked by Cromwell's armies and withstood the ravages of time and still have a great story to tell. The first stop on our trail is the former St Mary's Church of Ireland on River Street in Killinall. This church was constructed in 1840 and contains a number of monuments and plaques that commemorate members of the Going and Hempel families. They were prominent aristocratic landowners in Killinall in the 1800s. The church was closed in 1991, but it was taken over by Sleeve Arda Rural Development, who refurbished the church and made it a wonderfully atmospheric heritage centre. The Sleeve Arda Heritage Centre was officially opened by President Mary Robinson in 1995. The centre is the ideal place to begin your journey through over a thousand years of history. When you have visited the Heritage Centre, move on to the next stop. Just around the corner, at the most modern of our churches on this trail, the new St Mary's Church, Killinall. St Mary's Church, Killinall. St Mary's Church is one of the most impressive rural churches in Tipperary. It is constructed in the Neo-Gothic style by the Dublin architect J.J. McCarthy. He was a pupil of the famous English Gothic Revival architect Augustus Pugin, whose most famous work was the interior design of the Palace of Westminster in London, now the Houses of Parliament. J.J. McCarthy brought the same sense of Gothic grandeur and style from England and applied it to his work in Ireland. He is also responsible for the Cathedral in Thurles and St. Michael's Church in Tipperary Town. Work began on St. Mary's in 1859 and the church was dedicated in 1865. The limestone used to build the church was quarried locally in St Johnstown and Burn Church and the pine for the roof was imported from America. Possibly the most striking features of the church are the wonderful stained glass windows. Several of the windows in the nave were made in the studio of Harry Clark, the most famous of Ireland's stained glass artists while others were produced by the Mayor and Company Studio, another well-respected and artistic glass studio. Take a moment to have a closer look at the window behind the altar. This is one of the largest stained glass windows in Ireland. It features depictions of the Twelve Apostles. They make an interesting comparison to the medieval depictions of the Apostles on the butler tomb at Kilcooley Abbey, which we will encounter later on our tour. The ornate stone pulpit that you see in the church was carved in the Pierce Studio in Dublin 
Two members of this family of stonemasons, Patrick and Willie, played key roles in the Easter Rising of 1916 and both were executed in its aftermath. St Mary's has more links with the struggle for Irish freedom and justice. At the rear of the church is the 19th century grave and epitaph of Father Patrick O'Brien Davern. He was from nearby Ballinure and he became a prominent agitator for tenant rights in the early 1800s. While serving as a curate of Nockavilla Donaski, he led a campaign on behalf of 1,300 tenants who had been cruelly evicted from the estate of Viscount Howarden of Dundrum in 1842. Father O'Brien Davern began a public campaign, writing a number of letters to the Nation newspaper to raise awareness of the evictions. Daniel O'Connell and the Repeal Association also lent their support to the priest. The Viscount was a powerful member of the British government at the time and he began legal proceedings against the priest. However, Father O'Brien Davern succumbed to a fever and passed away before proceedings appeared in court. Another priest who was an active campaigner for tenants during this period is also buried in the graveyard. Father David Humphreys played a prominent role in the campaigns for a redistribution of land from the aristocracy and landlords to the tenants. This period of unrest became known as the Land War. Father Humphreys had first-hand experience of eviction as his own family had been evicted from their holding in Maru County Limerick in 1882. Father Humphreys was instrumental in establishing the settlement of New Tipperary for tenants evicted from the Smith Barry estate in 1890 and later spent time in jail for a seditious speech. He served as parish priest of Killinall for 35 years and was noted for his eccentric ways and his denouncements of militant nationalism. Take some time to enjoy the atmosphere and soak up the history of this site. When you are ready, move on to the next stop. Greystown Castle Unfortunately, Greystown Castle is in a hazardous state and poses a high risk to visitors. So please do not enter the site and instead enjoy the lovely views of this imposing fortress from the safety of the lay-by on the public road. The dramatically situated Greystown Castle looms over the Cashawley River Valley, once an important routeway linking north and south Tipperary. It is thought that the name Greystown derives from the Norman lord Raymond Le Gros, who accompanied Strongbow in the invasions of Ireland in 1170. Strongbow may have been the political leader of the invasion, but Raymond Le Gros was the military master tactician, without whom the invasions would never have succeeded. Local tradition states that Raymond built a fortification here, probably an earth and timber fort known as a Mott and Bailey, to ensure Norman control of the river valley. However, no trace of this early type of fort has been discovered in this area. It is perhaps more likely that the name Greystown derives from one of the de Grey family, 
They were Norman knights who were named in documents from around 1300 in connection with this area. Henry Laffan, who was an official of the powerful Butler family, was granted 120 acres of land here in 1305, and Greystown became the chief seat of his descendants. The remains of the castle visible today date to the 16th century, around the time that the Laffan family reached their zenith. It stands five stories tall and reaches around 20 metres or 60 feet high. The castle was surrounded by a walled area known as a bawn. The livestock were housed within the bawn at night to protect them from raids. The Laffans became powerful in their own right and gained lands in Noan, Ballinure and Lurgo. By 1613, Thomas Laffan of Greystown was a Member of Parliament for Tipperary. However, shortly afterwards, the Laffans lost all of their lands during the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland. They were removed from this lush and agriculturally valuable territory and given new lands in Connacht. The area still remembers this family today, their names still evident in the nearby crossroads and derelict railway station at Laffan's Bridge. In a field to the north of the castle, there is evidence of an extensive medieval settlement, with the remains of up to eight houses, three large enclosures and a street running through the centre. This settlement is recorded as being the scene of fairs, large celebrations where people from the region would congregate together for feasting, matchmaking, merriment and trading. Unfortunately, very little of this once thriving settlement is visible above the ground today. It survives merely as bumps and ridges in the field, only the faintest echoes of life in medieval Ireland. When you are ready, Please make your way to the next stop on our tour through this beautiful region of Tipperary, Derry na Flan. Derry na Flan, also known as Gabon Sayres Island, is situated in the middle of Littleton Bog. The name derives from the oak wood of the two Flans, a reference to two prominent clerics who lived here during the 9th century. People have worshipped at this site from early medieval times to the 1700s. The site first appears in our historical records when a monastery was said to have been founded here by St. Ruin of Lara in the 6th century. Derry Naflan reached its zenith in the 8th and 9th centuries when it became home to the Kaili Day or Kuldi movement. This Christian sect were noted for their very austere way of life. Derry Naflan is also reputed to be the burial place of Aunt Gabon Sayre. Gabon was a famed architect, stonemason and builder of churches in Ireland in the decades around 600 AD. Indeed, Gabon actually means builder in Irish. He is said to have been born near Malahide in County Dublin in 560 AD. He is alluded to in an Irish poem from the 700s and is mentioned in the life of St. Aban and also has an entry in the Catholic Encyclopedia. 
A wealth of folklore abounds concerning the life of Van Gobon. One tale describes how on one occasion, when he was nearly finished building a monastery, the monks decided to lower his wages and cheat him of his dues. Gobon refused to negotiate, so the monks took away all his ladders and scaffolding, not to be returned until he agreed, leaving Gobon trapped high on the building. This did not deter Gobon though. He simply began to throw down stone after stone of the building, saying it was as easy a way as any to descend. The monks reluctantly relented and paid him the agreed fee. Another story concerns his shrewd wife, Ruashok. Gabon and his son were labouring for seven years to build a fine castle for a king. The wily king planned to have them killed when they finished it, so they could not build as fine a fortress for any of his rivals. Gabon heard of his wicked plans and sent word to the king that he couldn't finish the castle without a particular tool called a crooked and straight. The king, fearing treachery, would not allow Gabon and his son to leave to fetch the tool, so he sent his own son in their place. What the king did not guess was that the crooked and straight was actually a warning code for his wife, Ruashok. When the prince came demanding the crooked and straight, she told him it was at the bottom of a deep casket. When he bent over to find it, she quickly threw him into the casket and sealed him in, sending word to the king that if he wished to see his son again, then he should release Gabon. The king promptly released the two prisoners and was reunited with his own son. Three grave slabs on the eastern side of the island are said to mark the burial place of the Gabon and his family. The land for Derry Flan was probably granted by the powerful Ogonok dynasty from their base at Cashel. However, when the Ogonok's power began to wane by the end of the 9th century, the monastic community at Derry Flan also went into decline. The site was reinvigorated during the 12th century and the ruined church at Derry Flan represents these two different periods. The small, single-room church of the early medieval period was incorporated into a larger nave and chancel church in the 12th century. This was a traditional layout of a church during the medieval period. The chancel was the part of the church which housed the altar and where the priests, monks or clergy would have sat during mass, while the nave was for the common people. Outside the church, you can see one wall of an enclosure nearby. A small Franciscan community continued largely unnoticed on the island between 1676 and 1717. This was during a period of suppression of the Catholic Church in Ireland, when the harsh penal laws held sway, following the Cromwellian conquest and Williamite wars of the 17th century. 
Derry na Flan came to international prominence following the discovery in February 1980 of the Derry na Flan hoard. It was discovered by Clonmel man Michael Webb and his son using a metal detector. The hoard consists of five liturgical vessels, a silver chalice which is decorated with gold filigree and amber ornaments, a silver paten, a bronze strainer, a silver hoop and a bronze basin. It is thought that the hoard was concealed in the early 10th century. The objects were restored by the British Museum and are now on public display in the National Museum of Ireland, Kildare Street, Dublin. The hoard is considered a prime example of the insular Celtic style of metalwork from this period in our history. The circumstances of its discovery caused a national furore as a complex and lengthy legal battle ensued over the ownership of the hoard. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court in Ireland in 1987 which ruled that the ownership of the hoard belonged to the Irish state. Ireland already had some of the strongest legal protection of its heritage. This case led to a number of amendments, which placed a ban on metal detecting for archaeological objects within Ireland. That ban is still enforced today. In recent years, Life has begun to return to the old church site of Derry Flan, as dawn mass on Easter Sunday morning on the island has become an annual event. When you are ready to leave Derry Flan, please make your way to the next site, Magorbin. Magorbin Church of Ireland is believed to be constructed on the site of an earlier pre-Reformation church, though no remains of this earlier building are visible today. The current church was built by the Board of First Fruits in 1815. This board was originally established by Queen Anne in 1711 as a fund to build and improve Church of Ireland churches to help provide for the growing Protestant population in Ireland. As you enter the graveyard, you may notice to your right the burial plots of the Armitage family, who played key roles in promoting the welfare of blind people in both Ireland and Great Britain. Thomas Rhodes Armitage married Harriet Black, heiress to the nearby Noan estate in 1860. Born in Sussex, Thomas was educated in Germany and France and trained as a medical doctor in London. He built up a successful practice, but failing sight forced him to retire in his mid-thirties. He then devoted his life to supporting the cause of blind people, especially their education and welfare. He was the principal founder of the Royal National Institute for the Blind in 1868. One of his biggest achievements was popularising Braille in Great Britain, leading ultimately to its adoption as the main system of reading for the blind. 
He died in Cashel following a riding accident and was interred here at Magorbin in 1890. His daughter, Alice Stanley Armitage, played an integral role in establishing the National Council for the Blind in Ireland in 1931. She issued the invitation to the first formal meeting of the organisation and drafted its first constitution. This new organisation helped to coordinate and improve services for blind people in the newly independent Irish state. Within the church, you can find a plaque commemorating two members of the Armitage family who died in World War II. Lieutenant Benjamin Rhodes Armitage lost his life following the sinking of the HMS Prince of Wales near Singapore in 1941. Lieutenant Stanley Rhodes Armitage perished as a Japanese prisoner of war in Siam, now Thailand, in 1943. About 300 metres north of the church, on the opposite side of the road, is a Quaker graveyard. There was a Quaker meeting house in the area during the 1700s. The Quakers came to Ireland in the aftermath of the Cromwellian invasions. Their opposition to violence and messages of peace, fairness in business and charity made them a respected group in Ireland. When you are ready, please make your way to the next stop on our trail, Crohan. Crohan Church of Ireland was built in 1839 and is still in use. However, this site has a history of activity dating back to early Christian times. Its name in Irish is Crohan Maya Auna the round hill in the plain of the river. Crohan is linked to the Virgin Saint Shinnach, who lived here sometime between 450 and 550 AD. She was linked to the Ogonach dynasty of Cashel and was a sister of Saint Senachus. Her feast day falls on October 5th and was celebrated with a pattern festival in Ballangarry until the early 1800s. However, the festival was brought to a halt by a local priest who deemed it to have become very unchristian. He said, The celebrations bore little resemblance to celebrating the sanctity of Saint Shinnok. Shinnok's holy well was situated in the field beside the church to the west, but it has now long since dried up. Crohan was the scene of a battle between the native Irish and Vikings in 852. An ancient compilation, known as Three Fragments of Annals, gives an account of the battle. The men of Munster sent messages to Kjarval, son of Dunling, to come. They requested that Kjarval bring the Danes with him. Far from being one united force with a common purpose, the Vikings in Ireland were made up of lots of different groups from different regions of Scandinavia that followed different rulers. 
They asked for help to assist and relieve them against the Northmen, who were harassing and plundering them at the time. Kjarvel came with his army of Danes, and when the Lachlan saw them, they were filled with fear. From a high place on Crohan Hill, Kjarvel addressed his men. They rose out and attacked the Lachlans. The Lachlans fled to the woods, which were then surrounded by Kjarvel and his men. They killed and slaughtered the Lachlans at Kruchen in the Ogenacht. This victory was gained in 852. Little is known about what happened at the site in the aftermath of the battle. However, there was a medieval church here from the early 1300s onwards. Ecclesiastical records show that it was in use until the 1600s and was connected to the Cathedral of Cashel. You can still see some evidence of that earlier medieval church around the site. A fragment of a window of traditional medieval ogie-headed style can be seen incorporated into the external face of the enclosure wall in the southwest corner of the site. Just to the south of the church is the grave slab of Lieutenant Humphrey Minchin. He and his brother, Colonel Charles Minchin, were officers in Cromwell's parliamentary army. Humphrey was granted 1,271 acres of land in Slevarda in 1668, while Charles received 500 acres. Charles later bought lands in North Tipperary and Offaly. Such transfers of land cemented the English conquest of Ireland. This process was then accelerated after the Williamite Wars at the end of the 1600s and it led to a new ascendancy class of landlords who would dominate Ireland for the next 200 years. When you are ready, please make your way to the next stop, Lis Malin. Like the site of Crohan, there are records of an early medieval church at Lismalin dating to the early 1300s. It was one of a number of properties around the county, connected to Hoare Abbey in Cashel, which provided the Cistercian monks there with income. The present ruin is a Protestant church, which was built in 1716 and was still in use into the 1800s. As you move around on the outside, you can see a prominent headstone at the rear of the church. This was erected by Major David Power Cunningham in memory of his family. Cunningham was a prominent figure in Irish-American life in the 1860s and 70s. Born in Crohan in 1825, he became active in revolutionary politics and joined the Young Irelanders. He took part in the Council of War, which preceded the 1848 rebellion at the nearby Ballangarry Warhouse and had a key role in commanding the rebels. After the rebellion failed, he fled to America, 
but came back to Ireland on several occasions during the 1850s. The first of his many novels was published in 1859. It was called The Old House at Home and was based on the execution of the Cormac brothers of Lockmore in 1858. Power Cunningham returned to America at the outbreak of the American Civil War and began working as a journalist for the New York Herald. He became a war correspondent and reported on the activities of the Irish Brigade under the command of General Thomas Francis Marr. He saw a lot of frontline action and was wounded and he was commended for bravery. After the war, Cunningham was active in Fenian politics in New York and continued to write prolifically about his Civil War experiences, as well as completing further novels and historical works. All the while, he remained in close touch with events back in Ireland through his friend and relative Charles J. Kickham and visited home regularly. He died in New York in 1883 and is buried in Calvary Cemetery. When you are ready, please make your way to the next stop, Bulik. Before walking along the path to the churchyard, Take a look at the field on the opposite side of the lane. Here you can see a distinctive steeply sloped small hill. This is the remains of a Norman motte. These were defensive sites that the Normans used to control their newly captured lands after their invasions at the end of the 12th century. Motte and baileys were a standard form of Norman fortification. They were quick and easy to construct and extremely effective defensive positions. The soldiers would raise the motte, a large steep-sided earthen mound with a wooden or stone tower on the flattened surface at the summit. The mound would then be surrounded at the base by the bailey, an area enclosed by more earthen ditches and timber palisades. The bailey would house buildings like a hall, barracks, stores, forges, workshops and all the other key ancillary buildings necessary for maintaining the garrison. When the Normans had established control of a territory, they often constructed churches to serve their garrisons and their families. These manor settlements, centred around the mott and church, became a common sight across the southeast of Ireland. The manor of Bulick was held by Manasir Arsic in 1200. In 1307, John Asic was lord of the manor. Around this time, Bulick became connected to the priory of the Hospital of St John of Dublin, also known as the Crutched Friars. Church revenues and land were granted to the Priory and, in exchange, they provided a priest for the parish. Bulick subsequently came into the ownership of the Butlers of Ormond, the most powerful family in Tipperary and Kilkenny in the medieval period. The Tower House 
east of the church is known as Bone Ree Castle and was built by Edmund Butler in 1453. It seems that the butlers themselves did not always live at Bulick. As records show, it was rented to other Anglo-Norman families, including the Cantwells and Laffins throughout the medieval period. The church ruin in Bulick is amongst the largest in this part of Tipperary and also dates around the 15th century. The tower at the west end of the church served as living quarters for the priest. The church was attacked and possibly burned during the turbulent years of the 1600s. However, it was still in use in the 1750s when Bishop Edmund Butler made a number of visitations. At this time, the church was dedicated to the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin. Records of births, deaths and marriages were being kept and the church was equipped with a chalice, other liturgical vessels and vestments. An interesting discovery was made at Bulick in 1890 by two grave diggers who uncovered two cast bronze church bells. The bells were taken to the garden of the Archbishop's Palace in Thurlis by Dr. Croke, where they remained for many years. It was only when they were investigated in the 1970s that it was realised they were of some significance. One was dated to the early 13th century and is thought to be the oldest church bell in Ireland. The second bell dates from the 15th century. There is speculation that they once hung in Kilcooley Abbey. When Holy Cross Abbey was restored in the 1970s, Archbishop Morris presented the bells to the newly renovated Abbey, where they were dedicated to St Michael and St Gabriel. Today, the bells can be rung by visitors as part of the guided tours of Holy Cross Abbey. When you are ready to leave, please make your way to the next stop on our tour, Kilcooley Abbey. Kilcooley Abbey is one of Ireland's true hidden gems. It is located within the walls of the magnificent Kilcooley Estate and is one of the most rewarding heritage sites to visit in Ireland. It is one of Ireland's finest examples of a Cistercian monastery. It was founded in 1184, when the King of Thomond, Donal Moore O'Brien, granted the lands to the Cistercian Order. The Cistercian Order was founded in Burgundy, central France in 1098. The most influential figure in the early history of the Cistercian Order was St Bernard of Clairvaux. St Bernard believed that the other monastic orders had become dissolute and undisciplined and he and others promoted the Cistercians as an austere and hard-working order who focused on a life of prayer. The Cistercians were initially extremely successful in Ireland and spread rapidly from their first foundation that was established by St Malachy at Mellifont in County Louth. Kilcooley Abbey was a thriving abbey 
but suffered attack during the 15th century. It is recorded as being attacked and burned in 1418, and it was recorded as being almost completely levelled by an armed force of men in 1444. After this attack, the Ormond butlers instigated a programme of reconstruction, which removed the nave aisles and added a new north transept and tower. Most of the stunning Gothic-style sculpture around the abbey dates to this period of reconstruction and renovation under the patronage of the powerful Ormond butlers. The works were carried out under the eye of Abbot Philip O'Mulwain and on the north wall of the chancel you can see his grave slab dating to 1463. It shows him holding his bishop's crozier and book of prayer. He appears to have been part of a dynasty as his son William and his ancestors after him were abbots of Kilcooley until the mid-1500s. The butlers were rewarded for their patronage by having their tombs placed inside the sacred areas of Kilcooley, the most stunning of which is the incredible tomb of Pierce Fitzog Butler. He lived in nearby Clonamichlan Castle and he died in 1526. The tomb depicts Pierce Butler in his armour, though the sculpture has been partially defaced, probably by Cromwellian soldiers in the 1600s. At his feet, a small dog indicates his faithfulness and loyalty, and ten of the twelve apostles are depicted below. Going from left to right, you can see St Peter holding the keys to heaven, St Andrew St. James Major, St. John, St. Thomas, St. James Minor, St. Philip, St. Bartholomew, St. Simon and St. Matthew. Unusually, we know who actually created the tomb, as the name of the sculptor, Rory O'Tunny, is clearly marked. He was the patriarch of a dynasty of medieval sculptors based in Callan in County Kilkenny. The tomb is just one of a number of outstanding examples of medieval sculpture that you can discover at Kilcooley. For example, the beautiful east window in the chancel is ornately carved in a style known as flame tracery. And the abbot's chair, known as a sedilla, is one of the finest in Ireland. As you move around the abbey, keep your eye out for a number of small mason's marks, similar to those you can find later at Holy Cross Abbey. Perhaps most striking of all is the sacristy wall in the south transept. Here you can see several distinctive carvings in five panels. They include a mermaid with a comb and a mirror, a crucifixion scene, an abbot and St Christopher holding the infant Jesus. The presence of the butler coat of arms here is testament to their patronage of Kilcooley.
Beyond this area, you can enter the cloister. The cloisters were an important feature of Cistercian monasteries and were always located on the south of the monastery. They were usually a covered walkway enclosing an open square area. Very little remains of any covered walkway at Kilcooley and it appears that perhaps the cloisters were converted to a courtyard in its later history. You can see other domestic quarters at Kilcooley, though some of these are kept locked and inaccessible to the public for health and safety reasons. Outside of the abbey, you can see a small circular tower. This was a dovecote, where the monks kept pigeons. The pigeons were a handy source of protein, and the pigeon dung also made great fertiliser. Very little was wasted in a medieval monastery. In its heyday, the abbey would also have had other agricultural buildings like mills and a large lay population to work the land. Like other monasteries across Britain and Ireland, Kilcooley was suppressed in 1540 by Henry VIII. Although there was an ecclesiastical presence on the site in subsequent centuries, the glory days of the abbey had come to an end. After the turbulent Cromwellian conquest of the 1650s, the land around Kilcooley eventually came into the possession of the Barker family. They lived in the tower of the abbey for some time. In the 1770s, the fourth William Barker built the magnificent Palladian house and was responsible for much of the beautiful landscaping we see today. He also brought Palatine settlers to the area from Limerick. These Protestant families had originated in Germany. A nearby area on the hillside to the south is still known as Palatine Street. Today, Kilcooley exudes an aura of tranquillity and mystery that will entice any visitor to stay and explore for an hour or more. When you have finished exploring, please make your way to the next stop. Liamour The vast expanse of Littleton Bog was the scene of much ecclesiastical activity from the earliest arrival of Christianity in Ireland. Along with Derry na Flan, Durahi and Derry Vela, Liam Moore is testament to this unique Christian heritage. Like these three sites, it is situated on a dry island of fertile land in the midst of the bog a suitable place for men seeking a life of prayer and contemplation away from the temptations and tribulations of the secular world. Liamor is associated with Saint Muchamog, who founded a monastery here around 590 AD. His name has been translated as My Kevin or My Beautiful One. 
Kevin is the patron saint of the parish of Moikarki, in which Liam Moore is located. Muchamog was born around 560 AD. He was a nephew of Saint Eta, who raised him for his first 20 years in Kalidi County Limerick. He then travelled north to study at the monastery of St. Congal in Bangor, County Down, before returning south to the ancient territory of Ela in mid-Tipperary. The chief of Ela granted him any site of his choosing to establish a monastery, but Muckamog wanted a deserted and secluded place. When he arrived at Liamore, a little bell which he had been given by St. Eta, began to ring clearly. She had said it would be silent until he came to the place of his resurrection. Muhammad then tamed a wild grey boar and called the place after its colour, grey, which is Leah in Irish. Muhammad died in 656 AD and his feast day falls on March 13th. He is reputedly buried somewhere at this site. Liamore appears again in the historical records when the annals of Innisfallen refer to the death of St. Cungus, abbot of Liamore, in 752, and also record details of other abbots and events up until 1100 AD. Liamore was raided and plundered in 1015 and this initiated the start of the decline of the monastic settlement here. Today, two church ruins are all that remain of this once important ecclesiastical site. The smaller church to the north is older and dates from the 700s and may even have been built by Kungus. Its size, simple style and rectangular layout are typical of churches in early medieval Ireland. The larger church to the south probably dates from the same time but was altered on several occasions in subsequent centuries. Sometime during the 1400s an upper storey was constructed above the chancel and was used as living quarters. This can still be accessed by a narrow stairway where one can enjoy views of the surrounding countryside. The larger church has a number of interesting features, including a Sheila gig. These carved stone figures are symbols of female fertility found at many ancient church sites in Ireland. It is said that they were put in place to ward off evil. But another view is that they served as warnings against sins of the flesh. The Sheila at Liamore can be found on the archway of the north-facing door of the church. There are a number of carved sandstone heads and figures above the southern door of the church. It is likely that these date from an earlier time than the wall into which they were inserted. They may have been part of an earlier Romanesque church at Liamore, but some experts have speculated 
that they were brought from another ecclesiastical site. Archaeological excavations here in the late 1960s uncovered the foundations of a round tower, which are now preserved. It is likely that this tower had fallen or been dismantled before 1500 and the stone was removed elsewhere. The excavations also revealed a burial site. It appears that there was further activity at Leamore during the 1600s, when several houses were built to the north and southeast of the larger church. The earthworks around the churches are all that remain here, and it is not clear if this later settlement was ecclesiastical or secular in nature. When you are finished exploring here, please make your way to the last stop on the trail, Holy Cross Abbey. Like Kilcooley Abbey that we visited earlier, Holy Cross is another Cistercian foundation and it is one of the true ecclesiastical jewels in all of Ireland. Holy Cross was also founded from a donation by Donal Moore O'Brien, King of Thomond, in 1182, and the charter he granted to the Cistercians survives to this day. The O'Brien dynasty were strong supporters of church reform during the 1100s and their loyalty to Rome was rewarded when Pope Paschal II presented a fragment of the true cross to Murchartach O'Brien in 1110 AD. This was a powerful relic, thought to be a splinter of the very cross that Jesus was crucified on. Its presence in the Abbey was very significant and spiritually and economically very valuable. Thousands of pilgrims trekked to view the relic and Holy Cross was considered to be a major pilgrimage stop. This made Holy Cross an extremely wealthy institution and at one point in history, Holy Cross Abbey housed at least two, if not three, relics of the True Cross. The legend of the Good Woman's Son is associated with one of these relics. According to this tale, a blind monk had a vision where he saw a murdered man's body half buried in a nearby wood. The victim was a young English prince who was collecting Peter's pence, which were monetary contributions to the church. The young prince was set upon robbed and killed. The visionary monk sought help to bring the body back to the abbey for burial in what became known as the Tomb of the Good Woman's Son, which is located at the Sedelia in the chancel. The mother of this man was an English queen and she presented the abbey with a relic as a token of gratitude. The nave of the church is the oldest surviving part of the abbey and reflects the simple architectural style of the Cistercian order. Under the patronage of the butlers of Ormond, the abbey underwent a major restoration in the 1400s. 
its most outstanding architectural features date from this period. The ribbed stone vaulting over the transept and chancel is a marvel of stonework and bears numerous marks of the masons who carved it. The elaborate sedilia, a seating place for the abbot and his deacons, has been referred to as the most outstanding piece of medieval church furniture in Ireland. On the west wall of the north transept, one can distinguish the hunting scene mural, a unique and unusual painting within a church. The relic of the true cross is housed close by, in one of the chapels of the north transept. The waking monk's beer, the east window, the rose window, the night stairs, the chapter house door and the cloister are other architectural highlights of this spectacular site. The last Cistercian monk in Holy Cross died in the 1730s and the abbey, already in a state of disrepair, fell into ruin. In the late 1960s, a major initiative to bring Holy Cross back to life as a place of worship began. Led by local priest Father Willie Hayes and with the support of Archbishop Thomas Morris and the Office of Public Works, careful restoration and conservation work began in 1970 and took over five years to complete. On the traditional parish feast day of Michaelmas, September 25th, 1975, the Abbey was consecrated and Mass was celebrated. The remarkable story is documented in Holy Cross, The Awakening of the Abbey, by Willie Hayes, one of several publications that helped to give an insight into the spectacular story of Holy Cross. Conclusion Now we have completed our tour of the ecclesiastical sites along the Derry Naflan Trail and we hope you've enjoyed your journey through thousands of years of history in the beautiful Sleeve Arda region. If you have time, take a trip to Ballangarry to see the Famine Warhouse of 1848 or, if you feel like a stroll, you can enjoy wonderful walks like Grange Crag Walk through Quilcher Forest to see a Victorian ice house, a waterfall and the impressive Wellington Monument built in 1817. You can also enjoy a lovely looped walk around Loch Derry Vela or have a bite to eat at Derreen Picnic Area. This guide was made possible with the assistance of Tipperary Tourism and by funding received from South Tipperary Development Company, the Department of Environment, Community and Local Government and the EU under the Rural Development Programme 2007-2013. 
For more information about this beautiful region, please visit www.slivarda.com. Gnairi and Boherlath. May the road rise to meet you.